This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. What we are doing in preaching is that we are we are attending nurses in the Holy Spirit's surgical operations. Sinclair Ferguson is associate preacher at St. Peter's Church, Dundee. He's also Chancellor's Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary and a teaching fellow at Ligonier Ministries. He's written a number of books, which I'm sure many of our listeners have benefited from in many different ways. Recently, there's been a collection put together of a number of essays Dr. Ferguson has written over the years. It's called Some Pastors and Teachers. It's published by Banner of Truth Trust. And Dr. Ferguson has been kind enough to speak to us today about this book and about pastoral ministry in general. So, Dr. Ferguson, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Jonathan. Now, you write at the beginning of this book, as as you introduce the essays, and, and you talk about how they were written over a number of years, and many pieces were written in the context of pastoral ministry. And you made a comment in there that I I found very interesting. You you talk about how writing these in the context of pastoral ministry really stretched you as a pastor, that as you were writing them, you were were learning a great deal. And you go on to say that you think this is a good practice for pastors, that pastors need to be stretching themselves to study and write in specific areas. And I wonder if you could expand on that. What, What should the expectations for scholarly work for this kind of advanced stretching study be for the working pastor? Well, I, you know, I think the basic thought in my mind there, Jonathan, was um, I've just noticed very often that, that men who preach can be, as it were, limited in their reading and their study to the urgency of the next message. And of course, at the, you know, at the beginning of your ministry, you know, if you've got to preach three times a week and you're just starting, that really is a tremendous pressure. But I think as, as we go on, it's important to find different ways in which we are enlarging our thinking. Uh, we're allowing ourselves to be uh, challenged in, in ways that we wouldn't ordinarily be just by reading commentaries. Um, and I think there are different ways of doing that. It just so happens that you know, one of the ways in which it's happened in my life is by people asking me to write things that aren't directly related to my day-to-day tasks in ministry. And I think I may even say in the introduction that in all of these essays, probably, probably in almost every single one of them while I was writing them, I thought to myself, why am I doing this? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's demanding things of me. It's pressing me. It's putting pressure on me. And yet once, once you have done them, you, you know, you look back with a, well, not just a sense of satisfaction that you've done them, but the fact that you've been pressed to think about things, study things that you wouldn't otherwise have done. And I think all of that helps us grow as preachers. I guess so long in my ministry, I've been kind of haunted by Paul's words to Timothy, that everyone should be able to see the progress that we're making. You know, and I've often wondered if anyone anywhere has ever seen me making any progress in ministry, in my ability to handle scripture. Um, So I found these disciplines very helpful to me personally. 
once I'd got to the stage where I thought if somebody wakes me up in the middle of the night and says it's time to preach, even although my message hadn't been crafted the way I might want it to be before I preached it, at that point, I would begin to read more widely, perhaps just on what the older writers used to call the doctrine of the passage, so that I was always reading way beyond what my congregation was ever likely to hear in the immediacy of that message. And in many ways, you know, looking back now, I think I see I was the imagery I would use would be like I was a squirrel storing up nuts for winter. And that over the long haul, it really is amazing how much more you can learn. And, and because of that, your facility and preparation uh, ought to increase. And over the long haul, your preparation for any single message should be fed by a much deeper and broader resource because of the study and thinking that you've done. Dr. Ferguson, I wonder if you might be able to make recommendations for pastors, especially busy pastors who find it difficult to take on even one more thing because of visitations, sermons, weddings, and funerals, perhaps a, a strategy, maybe not even a book list, but maybe a sort of topical strategy as to what sorts of books they could or should be reading. Because I think the thought is, if I'm reading a book, I need to prepare my sermon. I, I might be reading a kind of how-to manual about ministry. So what sorts of things would you suggest pastors should be reading? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, th I think I would say that the books that have helped me most, James, have been written by theologians who have had the church at their heart. In some instances, especially in the past, they've also been pastors of churches. But even if they've not, somebody like B.B. Warfield would almost immediately come to mind, or uh, John Murray, deeply committed to the gospel and deeply committed to the ministry of the gospel. And so, I've, you know, I found reading in these individuals most helpful. I think I would also say that often in my preparation, for example, if I was preaching through a book of the Bible, I would make sure I would choose one commentary as an exegetical companion written by somebody with whom I was pretty sure I would disagree frequently, because often in that disagreement, I would be stimulated all the more to think more clearly and carefully about the, not just about the exegesis, but about the theology I was preaching. The biggest resources for me have been in the kind of, I guess, experimental Puritan tradition. Going back, you know, particularly to Calvin, who has had an enormous influence on the way I think, um, but also in the way that he engages in his theological thinking. And then almost any of the great Puritans as a help. Another thing I think people can do is to either to choose a topic or to choose a writer, and perhaps to choose both, and just decide they're going to spend an hour a day reading in that author or reading on that topic. I think another thing that I have found helpful is I never sit down to prepare a message and then stand up when it's finished. 
And if I'm not getting anywhere, in a sense, I, I don't waste time on it. I think I'll be more helped by going and reading a book than by sitting staring at a, a blank computer screen or a blank page when I'm getting nowhere. And that's been a very important, actually a very important part of the way I've gone about preparing. Dr. Ferguson, as I was reading through this book, I noticed you go back and forth talking about preaching and teaching. You begin by writing about the three Johns, three pastors and teachers, and then the book ends with two long sections, the pastor and teaching and the pastor and preaching. One of the questions I often get asked by students and others is, what's the distinction between teaching and preaching? Pastors are supposed to do both. And you talk about John Murray as a teacher of preachers, but would you elaborate on those distinctions and how you see those playing out in the life of a pastor? Well, you know, I think the first thing to say is that as if we are ministers of the gospel, we are both. We're both called to be teachers and preachers, preachers and teachers. And then the second thing to say is, that there are different groups of verbs used in the New Testament for each of these concepts. And I think what is distinctive about preaching is not so much that it lacks the content of teaching, that is instruction, but what it does with that instruction, what its ultimate goal is. You know, one could put it rather simply by saying in general, what teaching is, is the provision of information. But what preaching is, is the employment of that information in such a way that it aims at instructing the mind, touching the affections, bending the will, and transforming the life. And uh, so, uh, you know, a good, I think a good way of thinking about this is to pick up what Paul says at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 3 and then the beginning of chapter 4, where I think in our English Bibles we're given one of the worst chapter breaks in the New Testament because it's clear from the linguistic connections that Paul holds on to the notion of the God-breathed character of Scripture, what it's useful for, and then goes on to say to Timothy, since that's what it's useful for, you should use it in your preaching in that way. And that means, if you go back to the end of Second Timothy 3, Scripture is profitable for teaching, but it's also profitable for reproving, which means, I think, touching the conscience with the teaching, not just informing the mind, but touching the conscience for correcting. And Paul's language there, epanorthosis, is, is used outside the New Testament in, uh, in the medical world of, of straightening something that has been malformed, mending a broken leg, as it were. So it's a very positive idea of reshaping somebody's life. So teaching, reproving, correcting, and shaping somebody's life in the way of righteousness. And I think it's noteworthy that Paul picks up some of that language when he then says to him, so preach the word and reprove and rebuke and teach with all patience. So it's that, um, it's that cluster of ideas 
that what is in view in the way we use scripture in our teaching is that by teaching that informs the mind, we're also seeking to touch the conscience. Or another way of putting it, you know, I sometimes think about what we are doing in preaching is that we are we are attending nurses in the Holy Spirit's surgical operations and our task in exegesis and understanding scripture and in the way we shape our sermons is we're handing over to the surgeon, the Holy Spirit, the cleanest and sharpest scalpels that we can create so that he may use instruments that he has himself created and we ourselves are handing back to him to use. And these four elements of the end of Second Timothy 3 are always in view. Dr. Ferguson, perhaps on that note, you could say a word or two with regard to the ministry of the Spirit in preaching. I took a class from you some years ago at Westminster on John Calvin's doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if you might be able to give us a few brief thoughts. I know you have a chapter on the Holy Spirit and Scripture in the book on how the minister should be thinking about the role of the Spirit. I know sometimes we can think to ourselves, it's on me to reprove and rebuke and to exhort and to instruct, but there's the agency of the Spirit at work in and through all of that. And I wonder if you could speak to that, particularly to encourage ministers who have this work given to them. Yeah, well, you know, maybe by way of personal reflection, James, I'm one of those, I'm one of those people who with uncomfortable frequency, uh, wishes that the a hole would open up after I've preached and it just swallow me up rather than having to go to the church door and speak to people. And I think one of the things I learned very early on in my, my ministry because of that was the difference between anything we do and what the Holy Spirit does. To the extent that, you know, I I often say to myself, I'm actually just a farmer uh, throwing around seed. And my responsibility is to throw around the best seed that I can find. But what happens to it? And so there is a, you know, there is a big responsibility on me to do the best with the gifts God has given to me. But on the other hand, there is this great comfort for me, that that is all I can do, that I have no power in and of myself to enable this word to change people's lives or to bring them to God, and that's exclusively the work of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, it's, you know, it's my task to use the best seed. It's my task to have the surgical instruments in the right place as it were, in the, in the best shape, in, in the cleanest form. But at, at the end of the day, I'm really a spectator of what the Holy Spirit does. And I think one of the ways I've personally been helped in all that, and I, I don't know when this dawned on me, but it dawned on me fairly early on in my, my life as a minister, that if I was going to be preaching regularly in a congregation, then I needed to understand that nobody needed to sit under my ministry as much as I did. And I I remember at a conference once in a panel discussion, somebody 
ask the question, so whose preaching do you listen to? And I, partly for the fun of it, said my own. And a friend who was on the panel as well turned to me in astonishment and said, you mean you'll listen to recordings of your own sermons? And I said, no, I can't stand doing that. I listen to them while I'm preaching them. You know, I think in, in many ways that is a key to our usefulness in ministry. And I think it has the potential to put something into our ministry that will be lacking otherwise, that it becomes clear, perhaps more, more by atmospheric ways than by ways people could put into words, that when we are preaching, we, we are preaching as those who are being preached to. And so in these moments when we are enlarged in our preaching, we're also most conscious that uh, we are with everyone else in the room, but listeners. And that the Holy Spirit is there for applying the very word we preach while we are preaching to us. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, what dawned on me many years ago now is that in a way that's the explanation of why those of us who preach can find ourselves going through such a wide gamut of emotions, being so conscious of our weakness and our sinfulness, and perhaps naively wishing it weren't so until we realize it's got to be so. Because the moment it's otherwise, you know, we have become useless in the hands of the Spirit. So I think, you know, I think very much of um, preaching as, and, and this is, I, I don't prepare manuscripts. So in that sense, I really, you know, I know what I'm going to say, even although I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth, as it were. But the whole experience of preaching to me is like a, it can be like a joyride with the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's what uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones used to call the romance of preaching, isn't it? Dr. Ferguson, along those lines, I have one last question for you. Having a hand in putting together a volume like this must have brought you into closer proximity uh, with things that you'd written a while ago and perhaps that you might not have thought about in some time. And I wonder if there was anything you have written that you studied and worked on that's in this volume that struck you in a fresh way when you went through it again, perhaps something that hit you differently or something that you were reminded about that you'd forgotten. Because I imagine this exercise must have brought back uh, to mind a, a lot of work that you'd done in the past. Yeah, it, that, that's a great question, Jonathan. Thank you for it. I, um, I just, just mention one thing. The first three chapters are really on the three theologians who have had most influence on me. And the third of those is a chapter on Professor Murray, which I was asked to write for a handbook of evangelical theologians from the 20th century. And it's rather, it's rather an objective piece about his life, about his work, about his writings. And I don't think that I see anything personal in it. But putting that back into the book reminded me of how much I personally owe to him. I was, I think, just turned 18 
when I heard the president of our InterVarsity group at university say that Professor John Murray was retiring from Westminster Seminary and we'd be able to have him to speak the next year. And I, I just have this vivid memory of thinking, who on earth is Professor John Murray and where in all the world is Westminster Seminary? And he came a few months later on, and it so happened our meeting was in the graduating hall of the university, which was a beautifully uh, wood-panelled hall. And I can still see myself as, as an 18-year-old sitting there and feeling as though Professor Murray came up to me, took me by the hand and said, son, come with me to the back wall here, because you thought this was just wood panels. But do you see one of those panels has a handle on it? And that's a door. And I am going to take you tonight through that door to show you things that you never knew existed. And it, for me, it was just one of those, it was the first time I'd ever heard a theologian of his reputation with such a passion for the gospel show me how rich theology can be and how wonderful it is to have that grounding in your preaching. And it, it, was, it was really, it just kind of opened a world to me. Um, and none of that is in the chapter in the book, but it brought back that, you know, tremendous memory to me of how he did something for me by God. I mean, this was really an illustration of uh, the Spirit's work, really. He never knew how much he did for me. Uh, I'm sure he would have been astonished that he had, he had contributed so much to my life. And it's a great reminder to me, you know, that especially as we get a bit older, that every time we preach, there may be a young Sinclair Ferguson sitting out there um, that we are going to be able to introduce to the riches of the gospel. So that was a great memory for me to have. Do you happen to remember what it was that he was preaching on? Yeah, he preached on the obedience of Christ, which was a big theme for him, of course, as it is in Scripture. Dr. Ferguson, thank you so much for oh, joining thank you, us today. Both of you. It's great to have the chance to hear your voices again. Likewise, and thank you so much for this book. I'm glad it's in so many people's hands. I think after an interview like that, it's probably going to be a huge anticlimax if we try to add anything. What a wonderful, rich description of some of the topics that are covered in this book. We, we commend it to you, our listeners, and we thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. If you'd like to enter for a chance to win a copy of Dr. Ferguson's book, Some Pastors and Teachers, you can do so at placefortruth.org. Click on the Theology on the Go button and look for the link to enter and win. And again, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. It's our privilege to have these conversations, but they're not possible without the support of listeners like you. So if you'd like to donate to this work and to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you can do that at alliancenet.org. So thank you for listening to Theology on the Go a brief interview about an eternal truth.